Have you, uh, have you ever noticed how if someone has a sports team, like that's their team, they're excited about it. Maybe you're not a sports person, but like that's their team and they're kind of like, they live, breathe, and are devoted to that um, and just kind of fight for that. And then there's those people that uh, we, people would call like fairweather fans, you know, the ones that like don't really have a t- team but like the social aspect or like to um, maybe make people fight over which team's better. And so they'll go to a game and they'll like root for one for a while and then when that team starts losing, they root for the other one and it just kind of drives everyone crazy. That's usually me if it's not my team, but just so you guys know. Um, no, uh, maybe a better example is, you know, like something simple. I'm thinking we will always kind of align ourselves to some form of a team or some form of competition and it's just in us, right? We want to win or we want to be different. Uh, silly things like let's take a Pepsi or Coke product, right? And, and here's how this works. Like normally you'll sit down and, and it's surprising. One is, this is a totally different issue, how passionate people are about Pepsi or Coke. But um, yeah, see, there it is. See, there's proof right there. Um, but here's, here's the interesting thing. Like it, it kind of divides a room, you know, the conversation comes up and then there's people that are like absolutely certain that Pepsi is better than Coke and they give all these reasons and this, this, this fight kind of goes and it's, it's in fun or whatever may happen. It's not a serious issue, but those happen around serious issues too. But it's also really uncanny to me how like Jen and I can be on the same page on something, but, and I think that God made women this way, but anytime there's a point if something simple, like small, like Pepsi or Coke or something or which sock goes on first or does the toilet paper go over or under on the wall? Like, you know, big deals that end marriages, right? Um, like that, <laughs> whatever that may be, wh- whether that's in place, if, if another woman's in the room, Jen all of a sudden sides with her. It's like you women are born with it's like we must defeat men. And therefore, like, like you, you will hold to nothing. Like you'll fight to the grave on something that you don't even believe in, but because you just feel like you need to win as a woman. Like, I don't know. Just kidding. It's, Jen and I are great. Our marriage isn't falling apart, I promise. Um, <laughs> But it's interesting that we'll just, we'll, we'll just side. We'll, we'll pick teams. We'll, we'll choose things. But what's most annoying about that, like even though I joke about the small stuff, what's most annoying is when, when you are around someone that truly doesn't really pick a side on something. And, and you, you'll see this in si- simple little things. They just love to instigate, you know, like, oh, let's just get people to fighting or whatever. But when it comes to serious things, when it comes to serious things, they, they'll, they'll waffle or they'll jump from one side to the other. But whichever side they're on, they're super passionate at that time. And you just don't know how to read them right? And you just don't know where they stand on things. And I think that if we're really, really honest with ourselves, and, and where I think Jesus is taking us in, in, this, in this Sermon on the Mount, is, is he's actually calling us out today to, to a devotion. And he's saying, look, you, you're either here or here. And he doesn't really leave much room for middle ground. And this is a, this is a difficult section to, to talk about, especially at a church, because there's so much stigma around it. But I think it's really worth kind of noting where we came from. Remember, Jesus just laid out in the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, he, he hits these Beatitudes, and he sets the standard of righteousness that's so high that we realize that none of us are capable of even meeting that apart from Christ. And then at the end of that whole section, he says, and just so you know, your righteousness should surpass those of the, that of the Pharisees. And then he goes into all these things that the Pharisees and the rabbis at that time had taught about truth in the Bible. And he says, I'm not abolishing the law, but I came to fulfill it. And he says, you've heard this, but I'm telling you this. And he just keeps elevating that level of righteousness higher and higher and higher. It's just, it's just ridiculous. It's, it's like, I can't measure up. I won't get there. And you realize very quickly, like, our need for the work of Jesus Christ and what he did for us on the cross. And then Jesus, in this last, the way that Matthew writes this and where it comes in, Jesus hits this, this part of the message where he, he kind of weaves himself to two choices to be made at the end of the section before we get into seven, and he hits some more stuff to kind of pound us in the head with. 
But the, but the choices he hits today, I think, are, are unique in, in that, first off, the section we're going to read in Matthew 6, if you don't have a Bible, slip your hands up, the ushers will bring you on. Matthew 6, 19 through 24 is where we are. The section we're going to read is, is Jesus repeats. And I had a really good mentor tell me that anytime you see repetition in the Bible, pay attention. Anytime Jesus repeats something, really pay attention. Because they would use repetition as a, as a way of, look, this is, I'm going to say this another way. I'm going to say this another way. I'm going to say this another way. And in essence, what he's trying to say is this is a huge deal. What I'm about to share with you is a very, very big thing. It's important to understand. Therefore, I'm going to say it a couple different ways. And this text, remember, he just came out of the three major things, um, giving, um, prayer, and fasting. Like, hey, if you're going to do this, do this with this right motivation. And then he comes to this section, which is Matthew 6, um, 19 through 24. And since he does it in repetition, and because he breaks it up in a unique way, I'm, instead of just reading through the whole thing, I'm going to actually take it by section this time, because I think that'll help us a little bit. So Matthew 6, uh, verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. And I know you get to the section, you're like, oh, man, treasure and money and church, and it's, there's a stigma that comes from that. I guess I want to say before we go anywhere in this section, whatever, whatever mistakes or, or frustrations or flags you have from this conversation, just if you could just lay those down, not because I believe that I'm going to share something very important, but because I believe that this has a lot more to do with than just money, okay? I believe that this section has a ton more to do with money, and, and secondly, this is a hard section. It's, it's been beating me up all um, last couple weeks as I've studied it, and, and what I realized is um, you kind of have to be reminded again and again and again that, that God is not a God of guilt. He's not a God of shame. God doesn't come at you to shame you. He comes at you with love and grace and truth. And although the truth sometimes can really convict us because it, it, we, as we see our life measured with that truth, we can feel pretty like, ooh, you know, but just know that God isn't up there going, well, yeah, see, I told you so. It's about time. Come back to me. Like he is a, he's a receiving a gracious, a loving God. And so though you may be convicted, my hope is that you see that conviction as the Holy Spirit leading you to be more like Christ and not some kind of guilt to, to make you feel beat up and, and worthless because that's never what God um, wants to do. But he says, he says, don't lay up your treasure on earth. And now, treasure in this, this, this word can be money. In fact, he says money later, which is actually a word mammon, which could be a number of things, but it is, it is essentially material goods. And he says, okay, look, don't lay them up on earth. And here's why. And he gives us three reasons why. He says, moths will come in and eat them, rust will destroy them, or a thief will come and steal it. And, and it's interesting that he says that because then he says, the flips it to say, but store up yourself treasures in heaven or moth, or rust, or no thief can steal it. And so that begs the question, first off, what is treasure in heaven? And, and I think we'll, 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 well, actually, we'll get there now. First Peter 3 through 5 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. From the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Our ultimate treasure is in Jesus Christ and salvation that comes from him. But, but there's a way you and I can live today because we just hit giving, prayer, and fasting where Jesus said you can do those with the right motivation and there will be rewards in heaven. Now, we talked a lot about that. You can go back, like, what, what's the motivation? The motivation, again, is that we're not doing it. It's the Holy Spirit inside of us doing it, right? First off, if you, like, pat yourself on the back because you're a giving person or you pray right, you miss the context of that text completely. 
but he does say that there are rewards. But our ultimate reward, our ultimate prize, isn't what I do or don't do today. It's being fixed on Christ, the author, the perfecter, the founder of our faith. That is our reward, which it, it totally makes sense. And so most of us in Christ can go, yes, I believe that. My treasure is in heaven with Christ. But then we realize in our life, as we live in this world, that there are a lot of other things that we treasure. And the problem is, is that in it of themselves, most of this stuff isn't bad. The problem is, is, though, is that we begin to serve those things. Those begin to rule us. Those begin to take precedence of Christ. And so a simple thing like a, a $20 bill is, is, is a $20 bill. It's a piece of paper that really has no value other than what the system we put in place of its value. But we begin to start serving that $20 bill. Similar, I think, our treasure can be a relationship. We believe that, that God is in place and, and, and he's, he's who he is and he's brought this amazing relationship to us and that's awesome, but we begin to let that relationship take precedence of who Christ is in our life. And it becomes more about being happy as a husband or a wife or as a friend or whatever relationship you're talking about there. It becomes more about that than Christ itself and you've, you've, you've made it an idol. And your treasure is in, hard to say, in, in, in something that moth and rust and thieves can steal or ruin. And so what he's saying is, is don't store up yourself for treasures. So most of us, will, we work for IRAs and retirements and, and um, careers. We're, we're, we're working really hard in college right now to get a career in place, and we've got all these things that we're chasing after. And again, none of them are bad, except for when they take place of Christ. So let me talk through that a little bit. First off, um, I think also our children can be a treasure if we're not careful. I really do, and I, like, I, I have to wrestle with this because I love my daughters. I love them so much. They're awesome, but I think a lot of times I'm more concerned about how I'm parenting them and who they are and how I can control their outcome as opposed to truly realizing that, that my biblical mandate is to train them in the way they should go to follow Christ. My, whole, my ultimate goal is that they would love Jesus. It's funny, I, I have a friend that here, he goes here, his daughter was 18 and, and realized she needed to go on missions and, and left to really, really hard areas. And I remember looking at him like, how are you doing this? And he said the most brilliant thing ever. He's like, it's the hardest thing I've ever done, but I don't want to get in the way of what Jesus is doing in her heart. There's someone that understood, <laughs> at least in that moment, their priority of what, who their children are to them. I had a, a really nice pair of dress pants. I only had one nice pair. I have to have a suit because every now and then do weddings or whatever. I had a really nice one, and I would wear them probably like six times because it's expensive to clean them. That's probably not more information you needed. But either way, I'd wear them for a while <laughs> and then store them. And I was like, okay, I need to go get this suit cleaned. And so I took it to this place to get it like steam clean and everything like that. And they, they cleaned it. They called it like, hey, it's done. So we went to go pick it up. And it was like 50, 75 bucks or whatever it was to, to clean them. And they, they handed it to me like, hey, we got it all clean. But just so you know, your pants have about 68 holes in them for moths. And I was like, and you still cleaned them? Like, that was my first, like, why would you still clean them? Like, yeah, we, we clean them, but, you know, you owe us money for them. Like, wait, let me get this straight. I'm going to pay you for pants that have holes that I'm not going to wear. Well, they're really small holes, you know. It's like, pointless. They have lots of holes in them. I don't wear them. Don't worry, guys. Um, but what I realized is, is I, I sit in my house, like, I feel like we're pretty clean people. I've never really seen a moth. Never. Like, I, I just haven't. Like, I've never, I mean, I was looking in my closet, like, where are those moths? You just don't see them. And I think the point that Jesus is saying is, is, is our treasure, a lot of times, it's going to be eaten up in front of us and we will have no idea it happened. No idea. But a lot of times what we'll do is we'll see that and go, oh, it's okay, let's go wash it anyways and maybe no one will notice. And if our treasure is in this earth, even when a moth is eating it, we will still put our energy and our time into trying to save it. It's a pointless effort. 
And then Jesus uses the word rust. And rust is interesting because it's, we see it as metal and just like kind of rust. And, and if you get salt water and the right things, and I'm not a chemist person or smart in that way, but um, one, of the, one of the really smart people that goes here told me after first service, hey, did you know that every year, 3 to 5% of the GDP is destroyed by corrosion or rust? I'm like, wow, that's, that's crazy. I didn't even know that. That's awesome, I guess. But his point was is that, that there is no way for us to completely keep every single bit of everything. It is, it is going to be destroyed. And the word rust itself doesn't just mean metal corrosion. It actually means the idea of eating things up. Like other than Twinkies, you realize that most food is going to corrode? Right? I mean, other than, I don't know why. They just don't. But, but, but most food will, will go. And, and, and if it doesn't go bad, you know what we'll do? We'll eat it. So it's kind of pointless. Everything in this world is going to be destroyed. And that word rust means you'll eat it, you'll, you'll destroy it, it'll be, dis, it'll be taken away. Like it is, it is going to be destroyed. And so the idea is that if you store up anything in this earth, anything at all, if the moths don't eat it, the rust is going to destroy it. It's going to corrode. It's going to go away. Like it, in the end, it, it's burned. Another text in scripture talks about how it's burned by fire. You know, the Egyptians used to believe that the kings would be buried with all their treasure. Now we're going back and taking that treasure out of the ground. <laughs> so they didn't even get to keep it. Point is that none of us take anything from the, from the next life. We don't get to keep it. And the last one he says is, is the thieves come in and, and steal it. And what's interesting about this is two things. One is, is the contrast between Christ and the earth. First off, that, that he says that in heaven, that will never be stolen from you. See, through Christ, our salvation is sealed and protected and guarded by the God who created everything. But the contrast is, is anything that we store up on this earth, anything at all can be taken from you. It can be a loved one. It can be money. It can be anything. It can be, it can be taken right from you. And if you've ever had anything stolen, it's a really lame feeling. Like, even if you don't really like that thing that much, you're like, man, that just, you just feel vulnerable. And like, oh, it's, sometimes it's more scary that someone was in your house or, or that, that, that that happened. But it's, it's, a, it's an unnerving feeling. And what Jesus is saying is, is anything you have of value can be stolen on this earth. In fact, in Novotis, where we've been, we've been trying to spend a bunch of time with fishes of Christ and doing that, they've started to see more and more white people going there. And so they have people getting up on the roofs trying to break in and steal. So, so nothing is, is safe. What Jesus is saying is, look, don't store up anything on earth. It's not worth it. You may keep it safe for some while, but sooner or later someone's going to eat it without you knowing. Or it's going to corrode over time, and you're looking and go, what happened? Or someone's just going to steal it. And so he says, don't do it. Don't lay up treasures on earth. And then he goes into, into verse 22 and 23. He says, it's really interesting. At first it feels like he's going a totally different direction. He says, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy... Your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad or evil, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? It's like, man, Jesus, where are you going? Like light, dark, what's going on here? First off, in, in the Jewish time, the term evil eye would have meant covetousness. Covet, like someone that wanted to covet or was, was willing to um, take, desired someone else's thing, greedy, and it would be someone that would usually like, hey, they have an evil eye, would have been a term used in that they are not giving to charity. They are not a giving a generous person. So to them, it made sense in that. But, but I think where Jesus is going a little bit further in this and, and what the context of this is, is, is light comes in through our eyes. And so he ties in. They knew this. If, if you're blind, it was only darkness. You couldn't, you couldn't see light. And so what he's saying is if your eye is fixated on darkness, then darkness will indwell you. If your eye is fixated on light, then light will indwell you. And what he's really saying, what the, this can really mean at the root of it, is that you're not double-minded. 
You have a single-minded focus. Your eyes are focused on the one thing that matters the most. You're not divided in it. Because he poses a question, well, if, you're, if, you're, if your eye is full of darkness, well, then how great is that darkness? So it's, it's, there's no line. There's no, like, spot where you can go, oh, I only want this much darkness. Like, really, we all know that darkness is the absence of light. And so Jesus is saying, look, look if you're focused on the things of this world, you're, you're staring at the wrong thing. If you're focused on things in Christ, you're full of light. And then just go back to 516. Let that light shine so greatly so that they see your good works and not give you glory, but give glory to God who is in heaven. So Jesus is coming full circle saying, look, if you are focused on the right treasures, then you will be full of light. And that light will be seen and they won't go, oh, wow, you're awesome. They will be pointing to your Father who created you. And so this idea of this lamp is this eyes that we don't focus on the things that we see. 2 Corinthians 4.18 says, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, for the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. He's saying this in context to them being incredibly persecuted in trials. Like, focus on the eternal things, the good things. You can't see it right now, but trust me, that prize in Christ is amazing. Stay focused on that even when it's hard. So Jesus is saying, keep our eyes fixed on that, which is in heaven. Think about this for a second when it comes to treasure. You ever drive in, driven an old car and then you see the new one? You're like, mm-hmm, wow, that's neat. It's not bad to notice it. But then all of a sudden you're like, well, I think I want that. I want to get a little bit nicer house. I want to get a little bit more money. You know they do a survey over and over again. It's like how, if you make $10,000 a year, how much do you need to make to be happy? And they're like 20000 and that would be happy. And they ask someone who's making six figures, how much do you need to be happy? Well, if I could just make this much more, then I would be happy. There is no change whether you make $100,000 or $10,000, they always want more. So what Jesus is saying is if you focus on what's more, what I can get here, if I can just do a little bit more, you're focusing on the wrong things. And again, it's not bad to want a good job, to be able to support your family, to care for your kids, to raise them well, to parent them well. None of those things are bad. But if your treasure, if your storehouse, if what is valuable to you is being put on that, then you have missed the point. You've missed the point. And then Jesus says, kind of, the, I think, the point of this text and the crux of it all. In verse 24, it says, No one can serve two masters, for either you will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Money could also be translated mammon. The word essentially means anything material. It could be good. It's a neutral word. It's not a bad thing. Material things are not bad. But what Jesus says here, and I wish he would have said it softer, <laughs> but he doesn't. This is the issue of this whole text. He says you're either going to serve God or serve money. This is the point of everything he's saying here. He said the third time, look, don't store up in heaven. Don't store, it, store up on earth. It's not good. Don't do that. Your eyes, if you're focusing on it, it's not good. Don't do it. And then he says, well, here's the point. And really what it comes down to, it's an obedience issue. Because you can't serve God and X. Fill it in, whatever you want to fill in. You can't serve God and do these things. You cannot. And you want to know why he says that? Serve? This word serve would have been translated to slave. It means to be a slave. And slaves in this time was, was really understood. It wasn't, it wasn't like they had a choice in it. A slave was 
owned by their master, and they served them all the time. You couldn't have two masters because they would never have the slave enough. In fact, the apostle Paul defines himself as a bond servant, as a bond slave. That just means that the slave has been long enough with the master that they realize that their life is better with the master, and though they can be released, they choose to stay. And so they mark their ear and they say, you are, you are my bondservant for life. And they take him in as a, basically a part of the family. And Paul says the best title we can have is to be a bond slave to Christ. I'm willing. Here I am, God. Take me. And you know what he's, Jesus is saying here? He says you can't serve both. In fact, he says you'll hate one and love the other. Now this is, this is where that question of where you're devoted to, which team are you on? It's really hard for us because we say, I'm devoted to Christ. I love Christ except for in my money. I'm devoted to Christ, I love Christ, but I just really need this relationship right now because I, I, I know I want to be happy there. I'm devoted, I love Christ, but you know what? It'll be way easier when I'm done with college. We keep putting this, trying to serve one or the other. And Jesus says, if you, it's impossible. In ancient Israel struggled with idolatry. They thought they could worship the Lord God and Baal, the Baal God. The, the agriculture God, and God continually showed them that worship of anything other than him, him is to forsake him. It's to forsake him. See, any of these things, money, time, relationships, any of these things in and themselves can be good, but here's the problem. They can either be used for God's kingdom to serve him, or they can be used as an idol. There isn't an in-between and this is what's so hard for me is that we want so badly to think that there's this in-between. There's this road that I can walk. That, well, when this happens, I'm going to go ahead and go this way. But you realize that the, at the point of this, and the reason why I think Jesus gives this choice at the end of everything he just said in righteousness is, is, is it's an obedience choice. Are you going to be obedient to me? And so many of us don't like Jesus as Lord, as King, as our master. We love him as our friend, as our forgiver, as our Savior, but we forget that, that He is our Master. It's a choice, an obedience thing. Verse 21, I skipped it earlier. And I think this is the way it applies differently for each of us before I get into that. I think that, that most of us, most of us really truly want to be devoted to Christ, but we get distracted. Most of us were like, man, I really, I really want this. I really, oh, I just do, but, ah. Uh, you know what's really interesting? If you want to know what your Lord is, if you want to know who you're, who you're, who you're actually your, your Lord or, or who you're serving is, then you just need to ask yourself this question. Okay, you, can, you can write this down. This is, this is how you can tell who you're serving, is remembering this. So it's not even a question. You will sacrifice for your God. You are going to sacrifice for your God. If your God is this, you will sacrifice. You'll sacrifice your family, You'll sacrifice your time. You'll sacrifice your, your generosity. If your God is a relationship, you'll sacrifice everything else for it. You realize it, whatever your God is, you will sacrifice for it. And that's why I think this is so key is because Jesus is saying, look, I mean, churches have always said, well, that means give us money and that's what, great, whatever. Who cares about that? The point is this, is that if it is your God, you're going to sacrifice for it. So if Jesus is your God, then you will sacrifice time, comfort, joy at times, even though your ultimate joy is in him. But our worldly joy, our temporal joy can be very, very different. Plenty of texts in here about suffering for Christ. 
dying to self for Christ. You will sacrifice all of that because all of it is, is useless. It burns up. It's eaten up. It's stolen. All of it's pointless. So then how do we live in this world with all this stuff, with our heart devoted to Christ? You know, sell everything like they told the rich young ruler. Again, that was a heart issue. But maybe it's time for us to sell something. Maybe it's time to, to let go of certain relationships. To let go of that thing that you keep running to. Alcohol, drugs, your reputation, because you realize your identity is founded in Christ. If he's your God, you're going to let go of things. And here's what Jesus says, and Mike used this analogy a year ago when he hit this text. A lot of us think, okay, God, you, maybe you're sitting here, and again, maybe you're feeling a little beat up, and you're like, oh, all right, God, change my heart for this. I want to be more giving um, with my time, with my money. I, I want, you know what, I'm gonna, that's it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to change the way I, I work. That's it. I'm going to be a bit more present dad. I'm going to do all these things like, like, God, just change my heart. Make my heart in the right spot, please. But see, here's the thing. In Christ, our heart is complete. And you know what Jesus says? I skipped the verse. In verse 21, he says, he says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. He doesn't say, hey, well, where your heart is, your treasure is going to follow. No, he says, you know what? Where your treasure is, your heart will be there too. So many of us say, change this, change this, and then I'll bring this over. And he says, no, no, no. You're already living your treasure. Your heart's going to follow that. Whether it's money, relationships, work, school, career. We want him to change this. It's in Christ. He's already given us a new heart. From a heart of stone to a heart of flesh. He has breathed life into us. He has given us his spirit that allows us to live for him in this. And the problem is, is we think, well, he gave me this whole heart, but I'm going to take this part right here and just kind of fold it back because I really like this thing over here. And I'm going to take this thing and just, you know, fold it back. And then, and then maybe, maybe I can get this or get this to come over here and then, oh, look, there it is again. And the point is, is, is this, is that where your treasure is, your heart's going to be. So the question, I guess, begs to ask each one of us, where's your heart? Where's your, where's your heart? Now, here's the thing. You know what heart translates as? We think of it as of our feelers. Oh, I feel so good. I feel in love. You know, the word heart is the center of who we are, the center of our will, our purpose, our acts. It is everything that I am. So do you want to know where my heart is? Look at where I treasure. Look at what I'm putting my, my time, my will, my thought, my energy, my resources into. And there you go. There's my heart. And that's what Jesus is saying. And he's saying, look, you can't. You can't be in the middle of that. Devoted to one, you're going to despise the other. I, I just, oh, man, I don't like that he uses those words. Because the thought at times in my life where I'm living a way where I really, truly hate him, I would never say that out loud. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say, oh, I hate God. But unfortunately, at times, I live my life where the center of who I am is very different because of where I'm doing this. It would be really easy, again, for you guys to think of this just monetarily. There's so much more of that. Devotion to a master is obedience. And so that's why this is an obedience issue. And that's why I love that we're doing baptism today. Because you know what baptism is? It's a declaration of my heart is yours, God. 
I, that's it. I'm, I'm done pretending. I'm done hiding from it. My heart is yours. Are they going to live perfect? No. Are they going to mess up today? Probably. But God's grace is sufficient in that. We run from contentment. A lot of times when we think of being content in our life, we think of lazy, right? They're just content. They're lazy. Not really striving to better themselves, not trying to be a better husband or a better dad or a better follower of Jesus, which all of those things are things that we're called to, right? But, but we don't do them. It's his spirit inside of us living those out. 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 7 says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world and we cannot take anything out of this world. So contentment is a very beautiful thing when lined up with godliness. Contentment in recognizing that everything else in this world is just stuff. It can be fun. God's a loving father and he can let you enjoy certain things. You can go on vacation, you save money for it. Great, whatever, that's all great, but it's still stuff. It's still an add-on to what really matters the most, your heavenly father. Your life being right through the work and the person of Jesus Christ. So if you want, your, you want to know where your heart is, start looking at what you treasure. Start looking at your time, your energy. I love this. This is so easy because every single life stage, as parents, you're kind of like buried and you don't know what you're doing, so you just focus on your kids and you think, oh, if I could just get them to this fit stage of life, then things will be better. And if I can get to this stage of life, then things will be better. And you realize like each stage of life is a new mess and a new struggle <laughs> and a realization of how much you don't have together. College students, you, you know, you're, you're working hard to get your degree so you can make something with your life. That's awesome. Do it. That's a good thing. But if you want to know what you're treasuring, I'd ask you how many times you open this book in the middle of all the times opening the other books in school. Oh, but my grades, you know, but, but my, you know, these things. It, it, <laughs> look, school is awesome, and it's going to help you amazingly in, in work, but I'm of the belief, and I think most followers of Jesus are of the belief that they're really doing anything apart from Christ is silly. He's, he's the Lord of our life. He's the leader of our life. He's who gives us the strength and the ability to do what we're supposed to do. So therefore, we pour ourselves into that. And again, it's not some working out my salvation because it's already sealed and being guarded by our Heavenly Father in Heaven because of what Jesus Christ did for us. So you already have, if you're in Christ, you already have the heart. You have it. You're like, well, I want to serve God when it's more convenient. No. It's never more convenient. So the question is, what is it for you that you're wrestling with contentment in? What are you chasing? What are you, you gazing at too long? What are you focusing on instead of focusing on Christ? Some of you, it is money. I'm sorry, like I said, as a church, I hate bringing this up because people are like, oh, no, the church wants money. Some of you, it is this. This is your God. You say it's not, but you, you know what? If you looked at your finances and you looked at how you spent your money, you are not in any way sacrificing. You may be doing diligence. You may be giving some stuff away, but it's not a sacrifice. So maybe it is money. Some of you, relationships, school, time, comfort. Point is, is Jesus gives us the laziest choice before us says it's, it's God or money. Jesus tells a story, and then I'm going to pray, and we'll end. He tells a story about the vine. and says, look, you are either a tree that produces good fruit, beautiful fruit, or a tree that produces bad. 
He doesn't say you're a tree that most of the time creates good fruit, but sometimes creates really bad fruit. He doesn't say that. In fact, he says you're either good or you're bad. And here's the thing. You know what he says he'll do with, 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 with vines that aren't connected to him? Because, again, in Christ, we're, we're, we're complete. He says, I, I, I cut that off. I, 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 will, I will cut that off and burn that because it's not of me. Therefore, I'm connected to that, and I will cut that off. And here's the promise. It's going to be really, really painful. I said that last service. That's a bad sell. I'm sorry. It is going to be painful. I'm not trying to sell it. But here's the point. The promise is when you have in your life fruit that does not belong of Christ, if you are a follower of him, he cuts it off, and that is extremely painful. It's hard. And some of you right now are in a pruning process, and you're like, man, I just feel like, I feel like nothing's ever going to let up. I feel like I keep, I keep losing this, and I keep losing this, and these relationships are gone, and I'm, I'm struggling with depression, and all these other things come, and all of those are very real things. But it could be that God is pruning you. He's pruning you to take your heart again and keep it whole. And that's painful, but here's the best part about that. Is as painful as that is, you know what happens on the flip side of that pruning? You look more like Jesus Christ. And that is the purpose. To look more like him today. We just prayed in, in the prayer section, God, your kingdom come now as it is in earth, as it is in heaven today. Come now, God. So we can live a part of that today. We pray, Father, thank you for your word, thank you for um, truth. God, I know that at times um, it can be really, really hard to, to battle and wrestle with things in our lives that don't line up with you at all. I know that we can struggle, feel like maybe um, yeah, maybe that we're just we're a failure to you. God, would you, would you, for those in the room that are feeling like failures, would you remind them of who you are as a father? Um, that your grace is sufficient, that no one is, is out of your reach of your grace, God? I'm true that they were fearfully and wonderfully made in the image of you, God. And for those of us in the room that really um, have to start asking the question of where our treasure is, God, would, we, would your spirit move in us? Would no one be free from asking that question? Would you, would you, in every single one of us, me included, God, would you point out in us things that are not um, in heaven but are on earth, God? And would you slowly strip those of us? Maybe would you cut those from us? Maybe would you have them stolen from us, God? My God, I pray that, that you do this not in that we have some kind of belief that everything's going to just be horrible in this world, but that we would be um, completely of the belief that you are holy and that you are good and that you are master. Would our lives look more like you each day and less like us? And so, Father, I pray that our treasure truly would be where our heart is, which you says it is, but our treasure would be in you, in eternal kingdoms, things, and less of, of this world. Now, for those in the room that, that are wrestling with this, that don't want to let go, God, would you um, soften their heart? Would you break their heart? Would you uh, relentlessly chase after them, push on them? Not let any of us be complacent with who you are, but content with what you've given us. We love you, Jesus, and we pray all this in your son's name. Amen.